morning once again. This is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on the show, host Dr. Elizabeth Alleman is joined by guest Sarah Davis, a local midwife with a master's degree in public health. They'll be tackling vaccine questions submitted by listeners in the past few days, and a special thanks to all of you who sent in questions to enhance our discussion today. Dr. Alleman is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. She joins us via phone this morning. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing great. I just love springtime in Missouri, and I'm really um, always happy to be um, Doing, talking on KOPN and doing Community Pulse, and I'm happy to be filling in for Jenny Chadwick, who is organizing a conference, so is not available to be our host on a Wednesday morning. I'm really happy to have Sarah on the line. How, good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So there's a lot. I, I was thinking, well, you know, we're kind of winding down here. Maybe there's not a whole lot to talk about, and boy, howdy, there's a lot to talk about. So um, first, just to review numbers, uh, cases in the United States are gradually increasing, primarily uh, uh, led by Michigan, the panhandle of Texas, um, and uh, uh, a little bit in Illinois. So it's sort of that part might be creeping towards us. Uh, Case numbers in Missouri are pretty stable, as they are in Boone County. In Boone County, we've got a five-day average of about 11 new cases. Um, testing is way down, though, and our positivity rate is, um, once again, above 15%. So we are probably missing some cases. So um, vaccines are being administered and um, being delivered and and creating uh, immunity. And it looks like there's a balance between, at least in Missouri, between the spread of the more contagious variant, the B117 variant, and which typically increases cases in communities, and the spread of the vaccine. So, um, but I wanted to like start in with the questions we we received. So one of the questions was, you know, like now that I've gotten vaccinated, I've gotten my two doses. It's been two weeks since my last dose. Um, I have no symptoms. I, um, as far as I know, have not been a direct contact with the case. What can I do different? And I'm wondering, um, Sarah, if you wanted to start with an answer and then I'll fill in if there's, if I have any comments about that. Sure. Um, what I can say about that is that we continue to find out more about what you can do over time. <laughs> And as far as what what we know um, right now, it's a little bit limited, um, <clears throat> partly because we are not quite sure um, whether or not people can transmit the virus to other people if they've been vaccinated. Now, the more data we get about that, the more we think that the vast majority of the time you would not transmit the virus to anybody else, but we're not quite certain about that. So if you want to see exactly what the CDC says about this based on what we know, they have a really nice little website that actually has um, a list of things that people might have questions about and green check marks next to things that we think that you could do without transmitting the virus to anybody else and red check marks um, 
excuse me, red X's by the things that we think that are probably not a good idea. So the things that we think are probably okay um, for people who have been fully vaccinated, and that's all the things that you just said. Those would be things like visit inside of a house uh, without a mask with other people who are also fully vaccinated. Um, and that would be people of any age as long as they were fully vaccinated. We think that you could probably visit inside of a house or in another indoor setting without a mask with one household of unvaccinated people who are also not at risk for severe illness. And that gets complicated because if it's a household and lots of different people live there, um, they may not all have the same risk level or they may interact in another setting with people who are at risk of severe illness. So that, that one is a little more tricky. And to be clear, it says one household. So that wouldn't look like going to, um, say, a family gathering where, um, you know, maybe there are three different households and the grandparents have been vaccinated, but they're visiting perhaps um, three different sets of adult children um, and their children all together. Like that would not qualify. Uh, we think right. that you can travel domestically without getting a pre- or post-travel COVID test. Right. We think that you <laughs> should travel domestically without quarantining after travel. We think that you can travel internationally without a pre-travel test, but this is dependent on the destination because there are some places that you might be traveling that would still ask you to have a test. So this is, this is the CDC thing that's probably not necessary, but the CDC is also not in control of travel requirements that other countries have. So that's something you would need to check on before you went somewhere. We also think that you can travel internationally uh, without quarantining after travel. So right. as far as the things that we think that you would not want to do, that would be to visit indoors without a mask with people who are at risk of severe illness. Um, the other thing we think that you would still not want to do would be to attend medium or large gatherings. Right. And that's regardless of the vaccination status of the people at the gathering. So the CDC is not recommending um, that, say, 100 vaccinated people have a fabulous party together inside. Although right. that really sounds lovely at this point. <laughs> it does sound <laughs> lovely. And just to, just to be clear, some people have been doing that all along, and I'm not trying to be critical of them. These are questions from people who are trying, who are, who are seeking expert guidance and are um, attempting to continue to dance this reopening dance in a way that's consistent with guidelines. So we are not right. talking about what people actually physically can do or what the law says they do. These are, we're looking at CDC guidelines. And I exactly. think a lot of people, and then people, the questioner asked, well, what about, you know, I'd like to get together with my friend um, and not wear a mask inside, but um, we each have household members or other visitors that we're a little bit concerned about. Um, you know, what about uh, the fact that I also visit with my unvaccinated grandchildren um, or I um, visit an elderly person? And um, 
those are challenging because, of course, there's nothing that's zero risk. Um, and many people have been being so very careful. And now the question is, like, how much to relax? And this gets to be a real personal weighing of the risk of COVID versus the risk of um, of changing the way you live. Um, so yeah. the, thing to, it, the person who asked the question was doing a great job of thinking about the downstream people who might be affected if there was a, a transmission between these two fully vaccinated unmasked people in the house, right. which we think is really low risk. And it's very low risk to the people who are vaccinated because our best understanding of the vaccine is it provides really good protection against serious illness, which would put you in the hospital or death. So those two people are protected by their vaccine. The question is, is there, you know, yes, there is a small, and we're not sure how big, risk that they could transmit it to each other and then share it with, say, an elder that they visit or a child. Right. That's exactly right. And I think it's also helpful to remember that this is our most recent information. We are actively gathering data that will help us to better understand going forward what the risks might be. And we expect this information to change over time. And that would be that would be a good thing. That would reflect us having more information. So the more information that we get about whether or not vaccinated people can transmit illness or how often that happens or under what circumstances, then the more specific information we will be able to have about what we can and cannot do at different risk levels. Exactly. So the other question was, um, should the fact that I might or might not have had COVID-19, if I got the infection um, and I am recovered from the infection, should that change the way I think about vaccination? And it's a beautiful question. Like, I asked this myself. Um, if I had COVID, does that change my risk of side effects or complications from the vaccine? And does it change how much I need the vaccine? And I'm going to start with that one. And the answer is, the answer I've been giving all along is we don't really know. So this is not a fully evidence-based answer, but it's the best I can do. And that is, I was going to say that I had a home-based antibody test in my office, and I took it myself the day before I got vaccinated. Um, because I got vaccinated in the first round and I did not want to take a vaccine from someone else if I still had antibodies and believed myself to be uh, protected from the disease. So there is an argument that you could make to say, yeah, I think I've had the infection, I've recovered from it, I'm going to count on my natural immunity, and I am not going to get a vaccine at this time. That is not the, the CDC recommendation is that you should still get vaccinated. But I get it. That's It's a you're, you know, we're always balancing the risk of one thing against the risk of another. And if you are recovered from the illness, we believe that your risk of reinfection is is really low, much lower than it was before you got the infection. Um, and we have yet to do any studies comparing people's protection from the recovery from the infection versus vaccination. Um, however, because we don't know that, we don't want anybody who has been, who's recovered from the disease to be denied the vaccine. So you are welcome to get the vaccine. You are encouraged to get the vaccine. 
And there is some anecdotal evidence, people telling stories, which is a beautiful way to start gathering data, um, that those people have a little bit stronger response with more intense side effects like fever, muscle pain, feeling lousy, fatigue, lying in the bed. But that is not, I, I am not convinced for sure that's true. I know that there are people who, I have talked to people who are recovered from the illness, from the infection, who pretty much sailed through their vaccine. So there's no, I think we'd all love to know how we can not feel, feel bad after we get a vaccine, but I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it's, it's true that many of us may have been infected and not know it because asymptomatic infection is, is a thing. So I'm wondering, Sarah, if you would talk about, um, from your perspective of talking to people who are pregnant and breastfeeding, how you're answering the question when people say, well, I'm pregnant or I'm breastfeeding, how should I think about this vaccine? Mm-hmm. Well, this is another area where we are at this very moment gathering more information about what happens when we give vaccines to people who are pregnant or breastfeeding. Uh, Although we have some really helpful data, actually some data about pregnancy that was just released um, in the last week about a small study, but a very, very useful study um, that looked at what happened when we gave pregnant people the COVID vaccine and what this particular study concluded is that um, those people did not have um, any more side effects than people who were not pregnant, and they made a lot of antibodies, uh, and they seemed to be as well protected as anyone else um, who was not pregnant from the vaccine, and they did not have any pregnancy complications um, or changes in their pregnancies um, compared to people who didn't get the COVID vaccine. So from what we can see with that little study, um, the initial information we have is that having the vaccine in pregnancy is very protective against COVID, which we know is more serious in people who are pregnant. In order to see if there are some of the more rare side effects, you know, we will have to give it to more people. That's, That's always true. Things that happen very rarely are hard to detect until we have given it to enough people that we can see a pattern. And if it's rare, you have to have a lot of cases to see the pattern. And you have to give it to a lot of people to, to see the pattern. Um, right. but, but to be clear, our initial information about the, about the vaccine and pregnancy, based on this first study, is that it seems to work well. And it's very good at protecting pregnant people from getting COVID. And we know that COVID is very serious in pregnant people. And we haven't seen any of the side effects that people were concerned about um, in those pregnant people who got the vaccine. As far as yeah, breast- we have been. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. go ahead. Well, I just, people have been concerned about um, wanting to make sure that the vasculature, the blood vessels in the placenta, are not being affected by the clotting problems that we see with right. COVID and the, the pro- clotting right. problems that we're going to get into about vaccination. And so far, we're not seeing that. That's correct. And, and again, this was a that, small study, but we did right. not see any of that, that the people, um, again, the people in the study and their pregnancies 
um, and all the parts of the pregnancy, like the baby and the placenta and the uterus, um, all worked in the same way that the people who were pregnant who didn't get the COVID vaccine um, worked. Right. Yeah, and so as many of my patients are thinking that what they'll do is wait, and I understand that because when you wait, you get more data. You also, when you wait, especially during a time where we continue to have community spread, you run the risk of getting the disease. And I think that many of us would like to find a risk-free way through this, and I haven't found one yet. So it's about trying to you know, figure out which risk you are more willing to embrace, the risk of getting the illness, the risk of continuing to isolate, or the risk of getting the vaccine. And none of those have zero risk, and each person needs to weigh that for themselves. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'm telling people, I'm encouraging people, is if you are thinking that in this next year or two, another pregnancy might be a nice thing to do, I'm going to remind you that statistically, babies tend to arrive about three to four months before their parents had thought that that would be the perfect time to get pregnant. And so if you were thinking you would want to get vaccinated before you did another pregnancy, this would be the time to do that. Because somehow just thinking about maybe another baby would be nice tends to, (laughs) I think, change people's consistency with birth control. And so babies often come a little earlier. They often are the early arrivers to the party. And um, that's all, that is often a thing that people celebrate. But if you had wanted to do something before you got pregnant, then the time to do it is when you're thinking that the pregnancy might be nice. Yep. And I also and want so, to clarify that the information that we have about COVID vaccines and pregnancy, that little um, study that was just published, that is um, the mRNA vaccine. So it would be Pfizer and Moderna. Gotcha. Right. So they had yeah. not... Now, there have been um, pregnant people who have gotten the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but we don't have a study um, to tell us more about that at this time. So I'd love for you to speak briefly about breastfeeding and how that impacts Mm decision-making. As far as we know, um, up to this point, our most recent research on vaccines during breastfeeding, and this is giving the vaccine to the person who is making the breast milk. Um, We're not talking about vaccinating the breastfed baby. We're saying if you give the vaccine to the mother who is making the breast milk and then the baby continues to breastfeed, what happens? As far as we know right now, all of our commonly used vaccines are, um, don't create any problems for breastfeeding babies. In fact, there are only two vaccines that are contraindicated in breastfeeding, and those are live virus vaccines that we don't commonly use. So that would be, um, let's see, the yellow fever, one of them. The other one is escaping my brain right this second, but um, it's not a common use vaccine at all. So, so in general, we do give vaccines to lactating people all the time and we are not aware that that creates any problems in their babies for a couple different reasons. And one of them is that breast milk is always full of antibodies, and so adding antibodies that a mother has created because she was exposed to a vaccine is not um, an unusual thing to have happen with breast milk. That's actually one of the amazing superpowers of breast milk (laughs) is that it's always full of antibodies. And so 
having more antibodies because the mother um, because the mother's body has maybe been reminded that pertussis is something that it should defend against. Um, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's actually a, a really wonderful thing about breast milk. And and those antibodies are often really protective of breastfeeding babies. So it's not a guarantee that the baby won't get sick from some of the things that we vaccinate um, lactating people for. But it definitely does have a protective effect um, at a time when we often cannot vaccinate babies yet for something. Right. And so that's that's just the snapshot of the background of vaccinating people who are lactating. We have vaccinated a lot of lactating people for COVID. And what we found is that the COVID vaccines seem to be um, just like the others that we commonly use and that they create a really robust antibody response in the person who got vaccinated. And we see those antibodies in the breast milk and the baby gets the antibodies in the breast milk and that we think that that's somewhat protective for babies. And that's really exciting because we don't have any other way to protect babies right now other than other than all of the ways that we try to protect babies anyway. And that would be things like the hand washing and the social distancing and mask wearing and you know all of the things that we do collectively to try to protect everybody. But this is a way that you could potentially protect the baby without vaccinating the baby directly. So yeah, I will say seen... that there's okay. there's actually some initial there's a study published, I'm trying to remember the specifics, that shows that children who live in households with vaccinated adults against COVID, I'm sure it's true for other things too, are less likely to get COVID. It's also true that um, students in schools, you know, young children who are students in schools are much less likely to get COVID if the adults in the school are vaccinated. So it's that cocooning idea of when we put uh, vaccinated people around a group of people who can't be vaccinated, it is a little bit of a protective buffer. Absolutely. That is, and that is another separate effect that's separate from the antibodies in the breast milk going into the baby. Um, one of the questions that I've seen specifically about the mRNA vaccines is if there is any way that the mRNA that we inject into the lactating person could in some way make its way into the breast milk. And we don't think so because we have not seen that happen. Um, it's possible that it could happen in some way that we don't know how to assess or that we haven't um, assessed enough breast milk to know if that's possible. But if it did, in fact, make its way into the breast milk, we don't actually think that the baby would be exposed to it in the same way that they would be if they were vaccinated for the reason that the breast milk goes into the baby's stomach. And stomachs are extremely good at breaking things down and digesting them. And this is actually and something mRNA is, and mRNA is very fragile, which is why it, it is. That's why we have ultra to cold temperatures. Exactly. Right. It's very sensitive. Yeah. And so putting it into um, a baby's mouth and then into a warm place full of digestive enzymes. Um, you know, that's not a place where the MRA can be intact anymore. Right. So even as if far the baby, as we know. Right. So even if the baby ate it, we don't think that that would um, cause a problem. And that's actually true of a lot of other medications that we give people who are lactating. Um, sometimes right. we give somebody who's lactating a medication that we otherwise wouldn't want to give to the baby. 
But it turns out that it's not a medication that you can really absorb through your stomach. And so even if some of it goes into the breast milk, the baby is really not being exposed to it. So going back, we don't think that the mRNA can get into the breast milk anyway because we're, we don't quite see how that would happen physiologically, and we haven't seen it happen. And even if it did, we don't think that it could be stable um, if the baby ate it. But again, what we do see is that the people who have been vaccinated do have COVID antibodies then in their breast milk, and the baby does get the antibodies, which is exciting. Um, and those are actually the same antibodies that people who have had COVID have in their breast milk. So when people are concerned gotcha. about whether or not having the antibodies in the breast milk might in some way um, trigger some sort of reaction in a baby, um, having COVID and having those antibodies gets you the same IgA antibodies in the breast milk. So... Um, so from that perspective, you know, being vaccinated for COVID as a lactating person, um, you know, is going to have the same effect as far as antibodies in breast milk as um, actually having COVID. All right. And I, we are nearing the end of the half hour and we have not talked yet about the Johnson & Johnson debacle. So maybe I shouldn't use that word. With the delay, there is a we, the CDC has paused, or whoever's in charge, has, the federal government has paused the um, uh, administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a, um, a adenovirus vaccine, and it is using similar technology as the AstraZeneca vaccine, and we are seeing a similar side effect, maybe. We are seeing a similar phenomenon that is associated with it, and we don't yet know about causative factors. And what we're seeing is a particularly very, very rare kind of blood clot, and that is central venous sinus thrombosis. And it is in the context of low platelet count. So these people should not be overclotting their blood. They should be underclotting their blood. And if we give them heparin, which can undermine platelet function, we can, which is an anticoagulant. So if we give them the typical treatment, that we would give to people with a blood clot, we can make things worse. And I am going to say that I have gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole trying to understand this phenomenon, and I do not. Uh, I'm just going to say I do not. But um, so there are people who are speculating, well, it happens in, seems to have happened only in women. It's only six cases in six million doses. Maybe these women were pregnant, lactating, taking birth control pills, and that could, I am waiting to get all that information. The challenge is that those situations, pregnancy, lactation, uh, birth control pills, do not cause, at least as far as I know, do not cause this low platelet uh, situation, which in the context of, and then having a clot and low platelet. So the central venous sinuses are the particular veins that return blood from the brain. And they're, they're called sinuses because they're a little bit more like pools rather than pipes. So they're a little mm -hmm. bit wider. Um, and it is uncommon for us to have clots in there. We think they're hard to study. They're inside the bony skull. You have to use special imaging. I'm telling you, I, it's, it is not an easy thing to diagnose. Um, 
But we think that it happens in about one in 100,000 people each year. So to have six in, you know, one in a million um, in the week, the particular week, six days to 13 days after a vaccine, seems like an increase in the incidence, especially when it's combined with this low platelet thing. So signs of this are like signs of a stroke. So it's, um, you know, it's um, headache, uh, change in the functioning of the brain where weakness, numbness uh, in one part of the body, uh, confusion, loss of consciousness. And if those things are happening and it's been between 6 and 13 days after you received a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, then you should get um, medical help either from an emergency room or an urgent care center or your primary care provider. And um, I am not sure how I am going to respond to requests to evaluate that because the tests to try to figure it out are expensive and difficult. So it's a CT scan and then usually followed by a particular kind of MRI, maybe with a spinal tap. Um, So we are all trying to figure this out, and I don't have an easy answer of these are the things you should look for, but we are not seeing the typical blood clots in people's legs or in their pelvic veins or in their lungs. It is so far six cases of central venous sinus cerebral, I can't say it again, blood clots in your brain, um, in the veins of your brain, um, which mimic the symptoms of a stroke. So that's the thing I think we ought to do. I'm trying to get it as simple as possible. If you get a blood clot in your brain, it's going to look like a stroke. And so if you have signs of a stroke, then you should always seek care so we can figure out what's going on. And I think that's all I can say today because we've now gone past the 930. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Mallory, for being our uh, engineer. Thank you, Sarah Davis, uh, local midwife with a master's in public health, who's joined us this morning. And thank you to the listeners. Wear your mask, take your vitamin D, get your vaccine um, if you can. And if you need to reschedule because you were scheduled for a Johnson & Johnson, that's easy in Missouri. So I will we'll talk to you on Monday. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. Special thanks to our guest, Sarah Davis, for joining us on the show today, and of course, Dr. Alleman as well. You can catch the show again live on Monday at 9 a.m. with host Dr. Elizabeth Alleman and engineer Peter Weiss. We appreciate you sharing your morning with us and tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM today. 51% is up next. Stay tuned. <laughs>